Well, today we're continuing a teaching series entitled Called Out, where we are opening the mail of the New Testament church. We're reading through a series of letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches that are found in the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, They're letters given by Jesus to these churches through a revelation given to John, the same guy who wrote the gospel of John. And in these letters to these seven different churches, Jesus Jesus gives them a word of encouragement, also with a word of warning. And today we look at the letter that he wrote to a a group of Christians in the ancient city of Thyatira. Now, now Thyatira was different than the other cities we've looked at so far. Uh, The other cities were larger, they were more influential, uh, they were centers of Roman paganism, and Thyatira was not so much any of those things. Uh, Thyatira was, I guess you could say, a little more backcountry, uh, a little humbler. It was a, it was a blue-collar town in many ways. It, it was a, a town filled with what you might call working-class people, groups of people who worked with metal, worked with fabric, who worked with their hands. And Jesus writes a letter to this group of people, and he starts out by saying, you are incredibly sweet. I've seen what you do. You are kind to one another. You have faith being lived out in acts of love and service, and you're enduring in the faith in a really, really tough context. I see that. But then, as he does with the other letters, Jesus shifts gears and he says, look, I also know that you have not been wise, to put it nicely. He says to them, you have, you have lacked discernment you have allowed certain people to bring in outside influences from the culture. And the message of the letter really boils down to this. Be careful what you mix with my message. That's Jesus' word to the church in Thyatira. Be very, very careful what you mix with the message of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned when when I read the text, Jesus uses some really strong language here. He calls the person or persons, we don't really know if it was an individual or a group of people who were kind of spreading these influences in this church in Thyatira, he calls this person or persons Jezebel. Now, what we do know is that that was not this person's name. Uh, They were not actually named Jezebel. Uh, Jesus uses that name to help this first century church understand the severity of the problem in their midst and just how serious Jesus was taking it. Uh, Listen again to what he says. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate, you allow for, you're too nice to that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, you, the church, to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Jezebel is an Old Testament villain. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember that there was a a bad king of Israel named Ahab. There were lots of kings of Israel throughout the history. Some were good, a lot were bad. Ahab was like the worst of the worst, arguably. And Ahab, it's said, was primarily influenced by his wife Jezebel, who lured him, seduced him, convinced him to introduce the worship of Baal into the life of God's people. And Ahab was like, you're smart, you're pretty, you're my wife, I will listen to you, let's go for it. And of course, it was a terrible decision 
They introduced the worship of Baal, this false pagan god, into their worship of God, and it was terrible. And then she became enemies of Elijah, a very important person in the Old Testament, very highly regarded to say the least. She became his enemy, and she instigates all of this terrible stuff in the life of God's people. And Jesus calls this person or persons who are inviting all these outside influences into the church in Thyatira, he calls them Jezebel because he wants them to understand as Jezebel led Ahab and God's people astray and corrupted their faith, these people that you are being way too nice to, they're going to corrupt your faith as well. And as horrible as that was, this has the potential to be as horrible as that. As detrimental to faith as that was, this has the potential to be as detrimental as that was. I mentioned before that the city of Thyatira was filled with, with laborers, with, with skilled workers, people who worked with metal, people who worked with cloth. That, that's what we know. And what was likely happening is that these workers who would, who would bind themselves together in what we'd call guilds, kind of an ancient version of, of a union. These metal workers would bind together in a guild. The, the weavers would bind together in a guild, and everybody else who kind of worked with their hands, they would group themselves together and support one another. And each of these guilds kind of had a, uh, a mascot, so to speak, that was like an ancient deity that represented each one of their guilds. And then there were days on the calendar in which they would celebrate each guild and its mascot god, and they would have fun. And the fun usually consisted of things that most people would consider immoral. But everyone said, you know what, it's a holiday, it's all in good fun, and they kind of look the other way. And they did this for the metal workers, it is for the weavers, it is for all the artisans in the community. What was likely happening in this ancient church in Thyatira is that there were people within the church itself who were saying, hey, you know the, the little deities that we all kind of recognize in our various guilds? You know the beliefs that each one of those represent and the things that they allow us to indulge in times of celebration? All those beliefs and all those indulgences are, are, are probably good. In fact, we can fold them into our Christian faith. In fact, our Christian faith might even be better off for it. It might be a more enlightened version of the faith. It might be a more genuine or enjoyable version of the faith. We can take all these things from these cultural gods that we're all very familiar with from our various guilds, and we can fold them in genuinely, authentically, and faithfully into our following of Jesus. And because the church in Thyatira was apparently really sweet and really nice, they were like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, we want to be a very tolerant, very kind. That sounds really wise. Let's go for it. And so Jesus writes this letter to say, no, the gospel, the message of salvation cannot be mixed with other cultural gods. If you take the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news, and mix it with the messaging of other cultural gods, it ceases to be good news and it becomes bad news. You can't do this. The messages of these other cultural things that are being worshipped, they are at odds with the message that Jesus has given to you. If you mix them together, you change the recipe and you ruin the whole thing. Now, what we've been saying throughout this series is that these letters to these ancient churches are not just a historical study for us. What we believe is that since God inspired the whole of Scripture, that this letter from Jesus to these ancient churches is also a letter to us, the modern church. 
that the things that they struggle with are very likely things that we struggle with. That's been true in every letter we've studied so far, and I think it's true with this letter as well. So how does this apply to us? Well, it applies this way. The situation for Jesus' church hasn't changed much. There are still lots of cultural gods that when we're outside of these four walls, we all recognize, we all interact with, that we are very tempted to mix and mingle into our faith. We're very tempted to incorporate into our faith. But these things, these messages and ideas from these cultural small g gods, they actually undermine or contradict the true message of the Christian faith. And because we, like Thyatira, we are a very sweet people, we're very tempted to pull all these things in and say, well, well, this cultural idea, this can live with our faith, right? Or, or this other thing that our culture worships and, and, and gives a lot of its time and attention to, we can fold that into our faith. After all, maybe it'll make our faith in Jesus a little more authentic, a little better of an experience. Maybe it'll actually enhance our life together. We can mix these things in. It's kind of like what you see on TikTok. Go with me on this. <laughs> on TikTok, what you see, at least I see this in my For You page, what you see is various food challenges. People who are saying that there are some, some unusual combinations of food that are actually perfect together. For example, let me share some of them that I've seen recently. One of them is that you can combine Cheeto puffs and pickles. There are people out there who eat this, who assert that they go together really well. These people are wrong but they assert this. Another one I saw is ketchup and popcorn, which apparently is popular among some. Now, if you like these things, we love you, but you can't be here anymore, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is bad. But I think the worst one, the worst one is this, mustard and watermelon. Yeah, don't even try to convince me that that's good. You, you see combinations like this and there's something instinctively inside of you that says, oh, no, 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 some things just don't belong together. Some things are bad. Sometimes when you take two good things and you put them together, you make both of them worse. Some things are bad combinations. Certain things simply can't live together no matter what anybody says. Our, our cultural idols and ideas that everybody accepts in our day and age, we try to mix them in with our Christian faith, but Jesus' warning to us stands. Some things don't go together. Some things are like Cheetos and pickles. No matter what somebody tells you, it's wrong. They're not meant to be together. Jesus' warning to the church stands for us. He says, don't be the one who tries to tell people that this cultural idea, this cultural God, can live together comfortably with your Christian faith. Don't be that person. Because some things don't belong together. That's Jesus' message to the church. Now, building on that, what I have to do is, rather than just be vague about this, uh, my job as your pastor is to tell you what are some of the things out in our world, some of the cultural gods of our day and age that we worship, that you and I, because we're nice people, we are very tempted to fold into our Christian faith, thinking that it makes us more faithful, thinking that it actually enhances our Christian faith, but in reality, it ruins it and makes everything worse. And so I could have prepared for you a really long list 
of things that we worship in our culture that we're tempted to co-opt and mix and mingle into our Christian faith. But we don't have time for that. And so what I did is I chose three that I think are, are three of the kind of the sneakiest and most insidious and most common of the cultural gods that we, like the church in Thyatira, are very willing to bring into our faith and say, these can live together, but they can't. Now, now before I show you what I'm going to talk about, I just want to make it clear, like, I don't like being the pastor who kind of wags his finger at things out there in the world. I don't like being that guy. But sometimes as a pastor, it's less of being a priest, and sometimes it's more of being a prophet, like saying tough truth that, like, nobody wants to hear, but everybody needs to hear. And this text in this moment is one of those more prophetic moments. And so I would just like to remind you that when it comes to the scriptures, I'm like a mailman. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it to your house. So don't get mad at me. It's your fault. <laughs> so, so, so what are some of the cultural gods of our day and age that we are very tempted to co-opt and bring into our faith? Uh, I would give you three things. The three things are universalism, nationalism, and humanism. Universalism, nationalism, and humanism. Now, these three things are not new. You see all three of these things manifesting themselves in the early church and working against the life and the message and the faithfulness of the early church. These things and more. There's nothing new under the sun. But these three old things are still rearing their ugly head today. Let me break each one of these down really briefly. Universalism is the idea that all faiths are of same value to mankind and the same benefit before God. Universalism simply says it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you believe it sincerely. And that's what matters to God. Someone who's trying to mix a universalist worldview with the Christian faith will say, look, an enlightened version of the Christian faith understands that salvation is found in a lot of different places, on a number of different paths. God's grace is found on multiple trails up the mountain. Now, much can be said against universalism, but I have to tell you, and you probably know this, that the most ardent critic of universalism was Jesus. Jesus was incredibly intolerant of universalist beliefs when he stood up and he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I and the Father are one. And then you have the New Testament church that took his message and ran with it, and Peter, who in Acts chapter 4 says things like this, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Universalism is a rejection of the gospel. To believe in it, to hold it with the gospel is to redefine the gospel, and to redefine the gospel is to reject it. They can't live together. They can't live together at all. The second one is, is tricky. Nationalism is the idea that true faith in Christ includes total allegiance to a particular country. Nationalism happens when you mix spiritual identity with national identity and something in you is tempted to say, well, they're really one and the same. 
or, or you tend to believe that God prefers one nation state over another as his kind of city on a hill. A person who's mixing nationalism with their Christian faith may be very tempted to say, you know, a real Christian is patriotic like this, or a real Christian will always vote like that. And that's very, very dangerous territory to get into. And by the way, you need to know that it was that rhetoric, that same rhetoric that was used by Rome to try and strong arm Christians into the worship of Zeus and Apollo. It was that same idea of, well, if you're genuine in your faith, you won't just bow a knee to Jesus, you will bow a knee, a knee to Zeus. Because people who are genuine in that faith also need to participate in this and mix them together. But the mixing of faith with a particular expression of patriotism is a rejection of the gospel. Now, that's not to say that patriotism is bad. It's a good thing because we're called to be engaged citizens. We're called to love and celebrate and protect all the things about our country, whichever country you live in, that are worthy of love and worthy of protection. We're called to celebrate and protect those things. But there is a difference between saying, I love my country, and saying, well, if you love your Lord like I love my Lord, then you will love this country. That's a mixing of the two in a way that rejects the most important, which is faith in Jesus Christ alone. But we're called to be engaged citizens, but to have ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ alone, faith in him alone, and not demanding or even insinuating that true faith also raises a particular flag. When that happens, bad things occur. Humanism is the idea that mankind sits at the center of the universe. That, that mankind's development, that our flourishing, according to our own definition of what it means to be developed and flourished, is the most important thing in the world. It's what matters most. Humanism, it, it disconnects truth and morality and reason from anything outside of the self. It disconnects truth, morality, and reason from the logic of creation. It disconnects truth, morality, and reason from the reality of God. And it says, essentially, humanity gets to define its own joy. Humanity gets to define its own reality. And the only sin that exists is to step in the way of someone else's pursuit of their self-defined joy. That's humanism. And in a humanist view, if you believe in God at all, you see God as someone who simply exists to affirm and who simply exists to remove shame from you, to remove shame from your own self-defined journey of flourishing and joy. Humanism is a rejection of the gospel because it, it denigrates God and elevates man in a way that is upside down. Humanism is a rejection of the gospel because it downplays man's sinfulness and it nullifies mankind's need for a savior. In humanism, mankind doesn't need a savior, it just needs an affirmer. That's it. And those are very different things. It's a rejection of the gospel. And what Jesus is saying to the modern church is that universalism, nationalism, humanism, any other ism that we worship culturally outside of these walls and we elevate and we celebrate, any of those things mixed in with faith in Christ is ketchup and popcorn. Popcorn. 
They, they don't go together. If you do it, it makes the church very sick. Don't. So then the question is, well, well how does the modern church protect itself from all these bad things outside of us that are trying to conflate themselves and mix themselves with the true message of the gospel? Great question. Well, I think we have to start by understanding or remembering from where the real threat comes. Let me illustrate it like this. At the Popovitz house, we are very secure. We have cameras all over the place. We have a camera on the back door, camera on the front door, camera on the driveway, camera on the patio, camera on the front lawn. And the reason we have cameras all over the place is because we know if something bad is going to come into our house, it's going to come in from the outside. If someone's going to try and steal an Amazon package or date my daughter, it's going to come in from the outside. And I'm going to know about it. And we're tempted to think that all of these threats to the message of the gospel, that they break in from the outside like a thief in the night. But look again at the text. What's the picture that Jesus paints? It doesn't break in from the outside. We bring it in. We invite it in. And we're the ones who give it a place of influence in the Christian faith. We're the ones who play the role of the seducer in our own faith. And it happens because, and please hear this with the love I mean to, I mean to express it with, it happens because we are, we are more discipled by cable news than the Christian scriptures. It happens because we fear being culturally rejected more than we fear being out of step with the kingdom of God. It happens because we worship through time and treasure. We worship things like celebrity and influence and power, and those things shape us. And then we bring them in here and we say, well, can, can we believe this here too? Can we, can we take this idea, this belief, and can we baptize it here and fold it into our Christian faith? These things can live together. These things can go together, right, Jesus, right? That's how this happens. It's like those 90s movies where the call is coming from the inside of the house. We're the Jezebel. And a lot of times it's, it's motivated because we want to be really nice, we want to be really accommodating, we want to be really kind. And so we're like, well, we, these things can all live together, right, and be the same thing? And Jesus says, no. So what that means is how we protect the church, how we stay faithful, is not by putting on boxing gloves, but by standing in front of a mirror. There, there's a temptation, especially in the American church, to say, you know what we need? You're right, there's all these cultural gods that are trying to mix themselves in with the one true faith. You know what we need? The church needs to put on some boxing gloves. It needs to fight. It needs to fight a culture war. We need to fight a culture war, put our boxing gloves on, and we need to fight, we need to fight progressivism, or we need to fight conservatives, or we need to fight, fight atheists or secular humanists, and the church needs to fight a war in the culture and win it back for Jesus. Read the text. That, that's, that's not our job. Look again at what Jesus says. This is a really important point, but easy to overlook. Listen to who is going to fight false teaching, who is going to root out the false gospels. Jesus says this, I will throw her onto a sickbed. I will, I will throw the false teaching mixed in with the gospel. I will throw it onto a sickbed. And those who commit unfaithfulness with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will do it. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus says, I will root out the idolatry in the world. I will show all the cultural gods to be phony and powerless. I will do that. I will fight. Jesus' message to the church is, I will defend my church. We don't need to put on gloves. For us to believe we have to engage in a war as the church with the culture is to believe that we have to do Jesus' job for him. And it allows us a very convenient distraction from the real issue, which is not the bad out there, but our unfaithfulness in mixing it all together in here. And so what the church needs in order to stay faithful is not boxing gloves. What the church needs is a mirror. And we look in that mirror and we say, well, I'm the one who's tried to let these two ideas live together and they can't. I'm the one who's tried to, to make this belief and this belief or this God and this God marry with my Christian faith and, and it can't. I'm the one who's done that. Lord, forgive me. Transform me and, and confess. See who you really are, confess that, and then feel the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that knows no end. Feel it wash over you and forgive you. That's what the church needs to experience over and over again. Perhaps that process sounds a little bit like this. I wrote a prayer for myself that I'll share with you, and I think this prayer paints a picture of what it looks like for the church that is very tempted to mix cultural gods with the one true message of Jesus, what it looks like for a church to fight for faithfulness. And notice how the words of this prayer are, are not focused on the bad that's out there, though there's bad out there. It focuses on the problem right here and our need for mercy and grace. You might find this prayer helpful as you seek to stay faithful in your walk with Jesus? If so, you might do one of those things where people like take a picture of what's about to appear on the screen. Let me read this prayer to you. Father, I am easily wooed by the gods of this world. I give their promises a home in my heart and their ideas influence over my life. I have invited them in, mixed them with my faith in you, conflated them with the grace you give, and told myself it's all the same. But it's not. I see my unfaithfulness. Forgive me of this sin. Fix my eyes on Christ and keep my hope in him. That's how we fight this. Not with clenched fists, but with folded hands. Saying, Lord Jesus, I'm the one who's mixed universalism or nationalism or humanism or consumerism with my faith and tried to make it all the same. Forgive me. Jesus ends his letter with a promise. He, he ends this letter with a promise that his church will one day be seen as vindicated Though the church at the time was persecuted and small, he makes a promise that one day when he returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and they will see that this once persecuted and struggling church belongs to the one true God, the one true King. And as Jesus rules over all, he will rule over this new creation with his bride, the church, at his side. That's the day of vindication. 
And at the end of this promise, he says something kind of strange, but really important. He says, I will give you the morning star. Now, what in the world does that mean? I will give you the morning star. Well, Jesus is referencing himself. He's saying, in the end, you will have me. Now, why does he refer to himself as the morning star? Well, what is the morning star? The morning star is that one star in the sky that is still shining as the sun rises. It's the one light in the sky that outlasts all the other lights. You can think of it like this. The morning star is the one light that wins the battle with darkness. And it's still shining at the start of a new day. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. There will come a day when every other light that's trying to shine and tell you that it's the light, every other idea, every other false god that's trying to shine and tell you that it's the light, it will fade away and I will be the only one remaining and you will be with me. I'm going to give you the joy of knowing that you are standing with the one light that lasts. And remember to a church, a church that is in the back country, a church that's not as sophisticated or enlightened as Ephesus or Pergamum, a church that works with its hands and is tempted to think, well, maybe we're not as, pro as, as, as progressive and profound as everybody else, to, to that church, a message that in the end, you will be seen as the smart ones, the victorious ones, the ones who got it right. That's a very, very encouraging message. So friends, remember, we must be careful what we mix with the Christian faith. That the things our culture and our world around us worships, even though we're a really, really nice church, those things can't be mixed in with the message of the gospel. It ruins the main thing. And that I know that holding on to Jesus Christ alone in this particular day and age, may make you feel small or unenlightened, or they may be some people who think you're, you're backward and dumb because you hold the truths of Scripture and you love Jesus. I know that. But in the end, you will be vindicated as their light dims. And you stand with the one light that remains. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this scripture is not an easy one by any stretch. But, but the message seems to be clear. Churches like ours will always be tempted to fold in all these other gods and other ideas that we worship and mix them and commingle them with our faith in you and we just make things bad. We make things worse. We break things when we do this. Father, keep us from this temptation and help us to hold on to Christ who holds on to us. Help our faith and, faith and hope to be in him alone and keep our eyes fixed on him. And in those moments, we find ourselves convoluting the Christian faith. Help us to repent and to receive mercy and grace that knows no end. Until the day when only his light shines. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.